season of Advent, the weeks that lead up to the Christmas season or the time of Christmas, I was thinking this morning just about this idea of longing for God. Uh, that is at the heart of what Advent has always been for the Christian church, this idea of the parousia in Greek. It's the parousia or the coming of Jesus. How many of you grew up in a Christian tradition that was all about the rapture of the church? A lot of us did, right? You remember, I lived on rapture alert my whole life, didn't you? <laughs> you mix the idea of rapture with a fundamentalist kind of fear-based background, and, and I was always on rapture alert. It's kind of funny to talk about now, but it wasn't funny to live with as a child, especially uh, for, those, for those of you with an eternal security background, you guys were fine, but for those of us with an eternal insecurity background, it was kind of rough, and we were always gnawing our fingernails to the quick because the Lord was coming and we might be left. That sounds like a caricature, but um, for those of us that come from that background, it's not a caricature at all. Uh, as a child, I remember even as a first, second grade child coming into the house, not being able to find my mother and just knowing the big one had happened, and I had been left behind and it was horrific. This idea of the coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus, we called it the second coming of Jesus, as though there had been one and then there was going to be a second, was a consuming idea in my life growing up. Through the years, I've, I've delved deeper beyond just my own history, and uh, you know, I have to be careful as um, a leader not to impose my own story on everybody else because everybody didn't come from my story. They didn't live with my story. Your story's specific to you. But in my own exploration of this idea of what it means to long for God's coming, the return of Jesus, as I delved into not only my own history but the history of that idea, I recognized that this idea really isn't indigenous just to the people called Christian or the people called Jewish. It doesn't take a very careful study of anthropology, human history, uh, to recognize that our earliest recorded, and maybe recorded is, is uh, not the right word, our, our earliest even discernible indications of human existence indicate that from our earliest days as a species, we were, we were concerned with things, um, with matters of meaning. As a species, we were concerned with things like the invisible world, things like what happens to us after we die. You even can go back 60,000 years and find that Neanderthal people buried their dead in a particular way that indicates that they concern themselves with existential matters. Where do our dead loved ones go? Where do we go after we die? From our earliest hours as a species, we have almost always habitually been looking upward and inward. Looking upward with an infinite gaze and looking inward, really, with an infinite gaze. And, and from our earliest days as a human family, uh, it, it seems in this matter of looking upward and looking inward, our reach has always exceeded our grasp. Why are we here? How did we get here? Where are we going? I mean, these are the questions we ask. Our kids start asking these questions when they're four and five and six years old. We could write a book on the questions, that genre of questions that come out of the hearts of our children. Is there a source from whence we came? Is there, is there um, an ultimate end, a, a judge to whom we're going? Did we come from something, someone? Are we going to something, someone? And in the meantime, uh, who are we responsible to in this space? Is there a source of all of this? And is that source interactive with us? And on what grounds, to, to what degree is the source interactive with us? Does the source micromanage our lives? Do we really get checks in the boat and 
vacations and healings for our children based upon the interaction of this divine source? Are there miracles? Does this source have a mind, intentionality? Is the source a person, a cosmic force? We've been wrestling with these kinds of questions from our earliest days, not just the earliest days in a macro sense as a human civilization, but in our earliest days as human beings in a micro sense. Every person wrestles with these things. I laid my, my last grandparent to rest yesterday, and thank you for your condolences, and I've been losing my grandmother for the last 14 years to dementia, Alzheimer's. Um, I knew three months ago that it was so time for her to go she started having dreams and visitations from my granddad the last six months. They had such a great love story. He's the one that said it was, all, it was okay to be henpecked as long as you like the hen who's doing the pecking. <laughs> we used to tease him, Frank. We would say, granddad said, I had your grandmother down on her knees begging the other day. And we'd say, what was she saying, granddad? And he said, she was saying, Lavelle, come out from underneath that bed and fight like a man. But they loved one another sore. They did. They loved one another. And she loved that man. She loved him so much. We lost him in 99. I'll always remember because Stan Jr. was one. And immediately after, she fell into the throes of Alzheimer's. And I called her Dabo. Dabo, I don't know why. That was just what grandmother sounded like phonetically to me as a little 12-month-old. But I called her Dabo. And even three months ago, I could walk down the hall of the nursing home and holler out, uh, hello, Dabo, and she, before, as she would turn, she'd say, Stan. And three months ago, I said, uh, well, it was about six months ago, I said, hello, Dabo, and she couldn't put it together, who it was, and that was my name for her. And three months ago, I was sitting with her, and she didn't know me, and she looked at me so sadly, and uh, she said, who are you? And I told her, she looked at me so sadly, and she said, who am I? And oh, that ultimate loss of self now. Well, there's a message in that, I suppose, but who am I? <laughs> I remember I looked at her and I said, you're mine. That's who you are. And she said, fine then. <laughs> you're mine. But I laid her to rest yesterday, and that, that's Nina's great dabbo, and Nina loved her so much. Um, but Nina, I watched Nina yesterday, a 10-year-old. You know, she's now ready to enter into those seasons of wakes and funerals. And um, she told Frank a while ago, she said, I cried all day. And I watched her cry. She cried for the missing of her grandmother, but she also cried for the baffling nature of the whole deal. Remember Nick Walterstorff, the great philosophical theologian, after he lost his son, he said, it's not so much that I'm angry as much as I'm hurt and baffled. It is this baffling that we deal with as a human family, this baffling thing called life. What is the nature of life? What's the nature of the source of life? Is the source like us? I mean, that's always been our tradition to, you know, anthropomorphize is the fancy term, anthropo, humanity. We impose upon God. We make God in our own image. What else is there to do? Is this God like us? Are we like it? Is it the wrong pronoun? Is he a better pronoun than it? Is she a better pronoun than he? <laughs> I love Anna Register's shirt that she wears. It says, I met God the other day. She's black. <laughs> um, it's got black, white, he, she, it, a cosmic force. A personal burl lives in the sky that is warm and cuddly and I can snuggle with? Is this source an individuated being with will and intention and emotion, or rather a cosmic transcendent force beyond our concept of an individual? The good news is when I, when I used to wrestle with those kinds of sophomore questions to the point of my own mental insanity, uh, the good news for me is now I don't wrestle with those to the point of insanity. Those are grand mysteries, and 
I mountain climb the mountain of mystery for sheer delight and joy, not for the saving of my soul anymore. Surely in the vastness of that mystery is a grace so vast that I need not worry with having to get everything accurate and right and all the T's crossed and I's dotted. If that is who that is, then we're all. That is our worst nightmare. But there is something, some longing that makes little 10-year-old girls cry and tears come unbidden for reasons beyond simply the loss of a great-grandmother. There's some sacredness and moments of transition where we all feel like the souls, the souls of our feet should be uncovered, the souls of our souls should be uncovered, and we should take off our friend of mine, a minister friend of mine from an evangelical background not long ago, took me to lunch and said, I need to tell you a story that I could tell no one else. It's not safe to tell the people where I serve. He said, my mother was dying. She was a splendid, bright soul, but she was a professor. She was never a person of deep religious faith, but always a person filled with wonderment, spirituality, vigor, and life. He said, I was that kid raised in that brilliant East Coast home and went off to college and campus crusade got a hold of me and I became a Christian and went home and tried to convert my parents and they never converted. They just kept living these wonderful, splendid, spiritual, meaningful lives, but they never gave themselves to my religion. It was a bother to me all through the years. And after 30 years of pastoring, he said, now my mother was passing and he said, my church sent me home to lead her in the sinner's prayer and hopefully have a deathbed moment of repentance with her. He said, I flew there and sat at her bedside as her lungs filled and she drowned with congestive heart failure. And in her drowning, she still wanted to be awake as much as she could. And I had a few moments with her and he said, in those moments, I felt the heavy press of my church and my background and my tradition to just get her saved and <laughs> just get her in under the wire, get the document signed. You know how we do. And he said, all along, it felt like such a demeaning thing in, in and he said, I finally could not pull the trigger. And he said, on the final day when I got up to leave, knowing that I was going to come home without the story that everybody wanted, he said, I felt a great sense of peace there with my mother as she lay sleeping, almost comatose now. The drowning was too bad. The filling up was too bad. And so they kept her beneath. And he said, as I got up, I kissed her brow and I turned to leave. I wonder what kind of a religion that we've created where pastors have to privately tell these stories to a single person for fear of being heard. The most important stories of our life we can't share. He said, as I turned to leave, he said, she called my name. And he said, I was shocked. And I turned and she looked at me. I walked back over to me, to her, and she looked up into my eyes and she said, she called him by the pet name that she called him as a boy. And he said, she looked square at me and said, did you have something you wanted to tell me? And he said, the war inside of my soul settled. And he said, I looked at her with great peace and said, no, ma'am. No, ma'am. And she smiled, a wry smile, and said, I didn't think so. <laughs> he said, as I moved to the door, kissed her, and I moved to the door to leave. Jeff, he said, she called his name again, and she said, you know when I close my eyes, if I see a light, I won't be stubborn. I'll move to it. <laughs> and he said, yes, ma'am. So sad that that story couldn't be told to his congregation. It's a story of the gospel. That's the good news. It's a story of true salvation. These scamperings and skitterings around the mount called mystery are profound to me now, more profound than they've ever been. We've been wrestling with these questions for a long time, and it's out of that kind of wrestling that our story of a Savior, our story of a Messiah grew. 
You see, our story, the Judeo-Christian story, begins really to finally coalesce in earnest. Um, it coalesces some five to six centuries before Jesus, before the common era. As best we can reconstruct, there was a small group of Near Eastern people called Israel. This being just five to six centuries before Jesus, we can begin to piece together solidly, solidly that there was a, a group of people named Israel, nomadic mountain people who had coalesced into a small kingdom closer to the size of Franklin than the size of modern Israel. And this little group of people lived in a much desired in the middle of a much-desired travel route with a lot of other little kingdoms of people. They call them kingdoms, and it's a grand name for a small pocket of a few thousand people. But there on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean is a land called the Levant, and the Levant is an incredibly desirable piece of property, not simply because of its topography and its great physical resources, but because it's fixed between three continents, not three countries, between Europe, Asia, and Africa. And, and, the, and the groups of people who lived in that little space of ground were always like rag dolls caught between the mouths of the great forces to the south and the east and the north. It was like there, there were Rottweilers and pit bulls and Dobermans and German shepherds all around them, but the little people who lived there, they were just the rag doll. And they were trying always to carve out an identity. They were trying to carve out a space, but they couldn't carve one out very long because one of these powers would always need their property and would offer them the best deal they could offer them, and that is we will subjugate you and allow you to maintain some geographical and even religious cultural distinction if you will be peaceful and allow us to use this space of ground for our purposes. If you don't, we'll enslave you, kill you. That was generally the best deal that they could get. And it was in that space of ground that our people... As a Judeo-Christian people, that's where our people be first begin to foment an identity. And that group of people in the 5th and 6th century, five to 600 years before Jesus, they found themselves one more time subjugated, taken out of that property into a foreign land. You remember when they hung their harps on the willow tree and they went to a foreign land and said, we can't sing there? Over in Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, that land between the rivers, there was always a kingdom, whether it was Assyria, Babylon, Persia, our people always found themselves subjugated, captive, and nearly destroyed at the hands of these powers. And it was in one of those spaces of physical and spiritual devastation when they hung their harps on the willow tree and they sat there in a foreign land, far away from the land that they believed was theirs, bereft of the presence of the one that they believe had given them that land, that our people, in an effort to make sense of the existential questions that I named a moment ago and questions like them, our people begin with deep questions of meaning and destiny. They begin to, they begin to coalesce a story. And in that foreign land, hundreds of miles east of their home, they assimilated the stories of their people gathered there. Oral stories, some probably even written, they begin to assimilate these stories. These stories we now know as the Hebrew Scriptures of the Old Testament. For them and others of their day, history was not simply, and this is hard for us to wrap our mind around, but it's very important for this group of people coalescing the stories of their cousins and aunts and uncles and fathers and grandfathers, history was not simply the recapturing of fact. History was not necessarily the precise reconstruction of the past, but history for the people of that hour, in that space, history was an effort to make sense of the present and to possibly be able to project the future. That's what history was. They didn't have files and PDFs and books that lasted. They weren't as capable. We right now know more about the 7th century BCE than the 6th century BCE did. That's how advanced our archaeology and reconstructive methods are. 
History was not that, especially for Middle Eastern people, probably pervasively the entire world didn't see history the way we see history. But history was always born out of a group of people sitting in the mire of existential questions saying, how did we get here, why are we here, and where are we going? It was mining the present and hoping and thinking about the future that caused them to cast their eyes backwards and say, where did we come from? Why don't we like snakes? Why are, why are cycles difficult and parts rise unbidden? Why do men struggle so with vocation? Why would a woman subject herself to abuse again and again and again? These are the questions that drive us back. These are the questions that caused me yesterday in the middle of a family to look at aunts and uncles Frank and grandparents and say, why am I what I am? What was it about these people and the way they lived and behaved and their ancestors that has led me to this place? That was Israel's way of doing history. And our enlightened, deconstructive manner of trying to always put together the precise details misses the vast point that Jesus made when he said it's truth that will set you free, not facts. It's truth, and truth is much deeper than facts. History was not the recapturing of facts or the precise reconstruction of the past. It was an effort to make sense of their present and to bring peace to their story. And now, knowing that, when I listen to this little group of people in that 5th and 6th century subjugated place, miles from their home, devastated and broken, as I listen to them sitting beside rivers not of their God, as I listen to them in a land that was not their promised land, you listen as you read the Hebrew text to the Jewish writers and redactors, the editors of that period. And you begin to see from the Genesis story and the snake and the fruit, the story of Noah, the scattering of the nations, the calling of Abram, the wrestling of God with Jacob and the name given to Israel. You listen to these who so artfully assimilated and wove their stories into a cohesive whole. You hear them wrestling with questions of origin and purpose and destiny. And one thing they agreed on, and this is the thing that I wanted to lead into the season of Advent with, one thing they agreed upon as a group of people hurting in that land. They believed that they were in the foreign land. They assumed, they decided that they were in that foreign land as a form of punishment. God was getting them. And there was nothing new about that because that was a common refrain throughout human history. God was always getting us. Whether it was tsunamis, floods, or sudden infant death syndrome, God was always getting us. Our earliest understanding of the invisible world was that someone over there was pulling strings. And sometimes the strings seemed to pull to a benevolent end, but most of the time the strings pulled to devastating ends and fires without cause and ultimately lightning became the firebolt of God, rain became the peltering judgment of God, floods, that was the raging move of God to sweep a people away. What else do you do when the Bosporus erupts and the Mediterranean Sea turns your black lake into a black ocean and 200,000 people die within hours? as a million Niagara Falls flood across what we now know as northern Turkey. I'll tell you what you do. You write a story and say that God was mad. You see, that story was written before our story, long before our story. It was a common story. And so pervasive in that, is that story in the heart, the sentiment is so pervasive in humanity that people were writing that story a thousand years before our people wrote that story, and people were writing it, Chris, on opposite sides of the world with no ability to cross-pollinate because we were all dealing with floods and fires, tsunamis and tornadoes and children that didn't wake in the morning 
and a common sentiment brew inside of us that somebody somewhere is angry. And our people living under the canopy of that premise, that thought, sit there in that foreign land. And I cannot tell you how many countless people I've sat with at children's hospitals and hospitals in general who sat in the midst of their subjugation and agony, enslaved by life to the pain of child loss. Or I can't tell you how many people have wrestled with their seventh miscarriage or and have set steeped in that sentiment, Ben, that somebody somewhere is angry with me. I know myself well enough to know that surely there's justification for that divine anger. And Israel looked around at one another and they said, we've got two choices. Either we're not the people of God because if we're the people of God, what are we doing here? If, if God is really our God, because that was the other thing that people did. It was always laying claim to the divine. You know, as some of my uncles say, well, my God wouldn't. You ever heard anybody say, my God wouldn't? Every time I hear that, Doug, I think, well, I, I'm sure your God wouldn't, but maybe mine would. We've been wrestling as a human family, not only to make sense of life, but to, but to claim God for our own. If there are those out there, if there is something beyond, then God knows I want it on my side, and God knows that surely my country is God's capital city, right? Israel wrestling with these kinds of things, decided either we're not the people of God or we are the people of God. And the only way we can justifiably say we're the people of God is to say that we are not being treated shabbily, but we deserve this. And if you read through the writers, there were three or four reasons, and all of these reasons are woven into the Hebrew text. They are distinct from one another, but the sentiment is the same. They could not possibly lose God and their status as the people of God, so they had to lay the, they had to lay the whip to their own back and say, we deserve this, and there has to be a reason we deserve this, and so they came up with three or four good reasons. And if you read the prophets, you'll find those reasons. We had a covenant with God, we broke the covenant with God, and now God's getting us. And some of the writers said that we broke the covenant with God along the lines of social justice. They said it's the way we've treated the poor. That's why God's getting us. Others who came from a different denomination within their system said, no, 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 it's not the way we're treating the poor. That's Amos and Micah and first Isaiah. No, it's not that. It's because we've turned to idolatry and we're worshiping other gods. That's why God's getting us. Others, Jason said, it's not that at all. It's because we're not keeping kosher dietary laws and the, the strictures of Leviticus, the Levitical system. Others, the priestly class said, that's not it at all. It's because we're not doing worship and sacrifice properly. But denominationally within their camp, sitting there in that place, they were all agreeing, God's getting us, but that's certainly preferable to God not being with us. At least, as my old football coach told me when he was grabbing me by the mask, I was always kind of a sensitive sort. I didn't like a Bobby Knight kind of coach. One day after a game, I was kind of pouting, and my coach walked over to me, and he said, Mitchell, I know I'm hard on you, son, but as long as I'm hard on you, you know I love you. I thought, well, isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Reminds me of the Andy Griffith show when Ernest T. Bass, everybody knows Ernest T. Bass? Y'all going to have to watch Andy Griffith show, or you're not going to be able to keep pace with me theologically around here. Ernest T., the grown man, simple from the country, had come in and he was being taught by Helen Crump, Andy's girlfriend, who was a teacher there. And One day, Ernest T. crossed the line somehow and Helen took out the ruler and did what teachers used to do and slapped him on the wrist and 
Immediately, Ernest T. fell in love with Miss Crumb. Later, Barney Fife uh, told Andy, he said, well, Andy, he said, that's easy. He said, uh, he said Sigmund Freud had that figured out a long time ago. <laughs> it's the old mother figure thing. And Andy asked Ernest T. later, he said, Ernest T., did your mother used to beat you? And Ernest T. said, yeah, she was wonderful. <laughs> we laugh to keep from crying because that's the way it is with some folk. And Israel said, yeah, God's wonderful. But we're not. God's wonderful and beats us a lot because we deserve it. Oh, and somewhere divine tears shed as humanity, all of us, not just Israel, wrestle with self-recrimination fear, what to do with our mistakes, and some of us have found that the easiest thing to do with our mistakes is the highest form of penance, and that is to turn not only ourselves against us, but to turn even the gods against us. But as long as he's got me by the face mask screaming at me, and as long as she's beating me, must mean I'm loved, right? Still interested in me, right? I deserve this. I really do. I, he shouldn't have hit me, but he really didn't mean it. And he's really not as bad as I make him out to be, and I probably drive him to it. That's what it is. I, I, it's probably more my fault than his. You see? It's not only a sad case in psychology, it's a sad case in theology as well, and both inform the other. But Israel in that land <clears throat> said, we did this to ourselves and we deserve this, but if we get right and put our best dress on and treat him better, he'll be good to us. And out of that grew a longing inside of them. And that longing was that one of these days, a mighty general, a mighty force, a mighty king is going to rise up from among us. And I want to tell you, he's going to come and we're going to have our hearts right. We're going to get all the social justice and all the idolatry and all the wrong worship and all the kosher. We're going to finally be religiously right enough that God's going to be able to love us and we'll be good enough to be with God. And God's going to send this marauding king, this powerful king, Mashiach, Messiah. And he's going to save us. And when he does, I want to tell you what he's going to do. He's going to take those Rottweilers and pit bulls and German shepherds, and he's going to get a hold of them now. Now, he used them to punish us, and they really didn't have anything to do with it, Sam. They were used to punish us. But one of these days, when we get things right, God's going to turn on them. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to kill all of them. He's going to get them back. That's the way God works, see. Is any of this making sense to anybody, or does it sound as crazy to you as it sounds to me? Am I the only one? But it's not crazy. It's called maturing humanity. It's called wrestling with questions. A Messiah is going to come. And that's where the Christian part of the Judeo-Christian story kicks in for us. A Messiah comes, and a Messiah comes into this world the only way a Messiah could come, through the womb of a woman. And an angel gathers shepherds and teenage kids because that's all he could gather because the priest and the sages and the scribes could not imagine the Messiah coming this way. Can anything good come out of Nazareth under a star in Bethlehem? My God. 
But God gathers a group of people around a manger, and God calls that Messiah something incredibly special. God calls that Messiah Emmanuel, Lee, Emmanuel. And, and on one hand, we expected for that Messiah to grow up and to become this powerful force that would bring Rome to its knees and would subjugate those who subjugated us, just drop them all to their knees and get them back, and now we would be the powerful force. And, and we had some sense that maybe that was going to happen because he did come out with lightning bolt in his fingers. He came out raising the dead, walking on water, and man, you could parlay a few of those miracles into a big crowd, and a few more of those miracles could actually bring the world to your feet. And, and about the time the Messiah is going to do what we thought the Messiah was going to do, and that is subjugate those who subjugated us, drop them to their knees, put old Caesar in his place, boy, We've suffered enough pain around here. He releases from the miracles and the crowd building, and he falls in line with the Solzhenitsyns and the Martin Luther King Juniors and the Gandhis of this world, and he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. And even those that were closest to him who knew this was the Messiah, the Bible said as they watched the whole thing go south and as they wrestled with, my God, have we hitched our wagon to the wrong thing? The Bible said they all dissipated and two of them on the road back home said, we thought this was he who was going to redeem Israel, Carol. We thought we had found the Redeemer. We thought the, we had found the one that was going to fit the narrative. God loves a particular group of people. God's on their sides against everybody else. God's going to take up for them. He punishes them when they do wrong, but when they do right, he honors them, and he's honoring us now, and it's our turn to rule. And about the time we thought we had our rule and our ruler, when he knew that all power was given into his hands, he took off his outer robe, wrapped himself in a towel, and washed the feet of even the one who betrayed him, and like a lamb was led to the slaughter. And we wrestle with, we thought this was the one who would redeem Israel. And our story is so baffling and perplexing as we rest in this season. You say, we'll talk about the resurrection. Oh, that's Easter. This is the season of Advent when we wrestle with our longings and our questions and our waitings. And it seems, it seems as we do listen to the story of Jesus as it continues to unfold in our heart, because I do think that's the essence of the Christian message, is that it's forever unfolding. Even Jesus said when he left the world, I have a lot I want to tell you, but I can't tell you now. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll explain me more fully to you. I think we've spent the last 2,000 years with the Spirit of God inside of us explaining more about Jesus. It wasn't just Israel who misunderstood their relationship with God and the world's relationship with God. But in the first 2,000 years of church history, I think we're still wrestling as Israel was with what does it mean to be redeemed? We're in and everybody else is out. God's on our side and against everyone else. We are still on the road to Emmaus saying, Lee, I thought this was the way he was going to redeem. I thought this was the thing that he was going to do. And maybe we're still, even as Israel was in those earliest days, a million miles away from the fullest idea of what redemption means. We're still Emmaus-bound disciples wrestling with a Messiah that we thought was going to be ours in our hip pocket, doing our bidding, looking like us, acting like us justifying us. We thought this was he who would redeem Israel. But the angel said, I never said that. I simply said, look over in that manger. This is Emmanuel, God with 
us. Not God for us, not God against us, just God with us. And maybe all along that us has been bigger than we ever suspected. Maybe that withness has been less conditional than we assumed. Maybe the withness of God is more pervasive and vast. Advent was the season when we said the Messiah is coming and God speaks back to us and said it's better than that. No one's coming. God is here. And Emmanuel didn't mean God just arrived. Emmanuel meant that God is with us and has been with us and always will be with us. The incarnation was that God came in flesh where God had always been. Humanity created in the image of God. No wonder the Messiah backs off in judgment and says, you know how you know you treated me well? I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. And we say, when did we see the Messiah like that? And Jesus sits down and said, as much as you did it to the least of these, you were taking care of me. The incarnation is not about the interjection of God into the world at a particular place and time and history. The incarnation is the reality that God has always been in the earth But we fall in love and idolize individual bronze-skinned Galileans when even that bronze-skinned Galilean didn't call for that, did he, Frank? He turned us to one another and said, do that well. And when Mary dug her fingers into Jesus and said, I've lost the Messiah once. I'm not going to lose him again. What did Jesus say, Van? He peeled her fingers away and said, let me go. It's better than this. And as he disappeared and we set up camp to worship him, he reappeared calling us the very body of Christ, casting our eyes horizontally to one another. The season of Advent is a season, and I haven't come today to give you all of the answers. <clears throat> Frank, I'd love you to come up here and talk with us a little bit about what you guys are going to do and what you're doing. Just come up and join me. <clears throat> the season of Advent is not a time of specific answers. The season of Advent is a time to stimulate and to stir these questions inside of us. Is God with us? Is God for us? Is God against us? Is Jesus coming back or is Jesus already here? And are we as the body of Christ already? <clears throat> I don't know if any of this made sense to you, but I think as I've been reading your books, yeah, take that one. Can you turn that one on for him, Wes? I think it's on. Okay. You wrote a book here a while back that I read, and I almost didn't read it because the title of it so perplexed me. I thought, Lord, that is confusing to me. But the book was Why I Am. How'd the title go? Why I Am an Atheist Who Believes in God. He's why easily perplexed. I, why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. Yeah. And this is the son of Francis Schaeffer, who was the greatest Christian philosopher of the 20th century, who's gone on his own journey. Why I am an atheist who believes in God. As I read it, the stuff that I was talking about today is the very stuff that you were echoing right. there. Yeah, exactly. You know, one of the things I do in that book is something you were doing in this talk, and it made me think of it. Um, <clears throat> this longing we have for resolution and for the coming of the Messiah I think, roots back into our fear of loss, not of ourselves, but it is the flip side of our deepest loves for others. And uh, that was really born into me in the last few years. I have five grandchildren, and I'm very fortunate three of them live across the street from me, Lucy, who's seven, <clears throat> Jack, who's five, Nora, who's 17 months. And Jeannie and I, my wife and I, uh, divide our time between us um, to take care of these kids while their parents work. And uh, I, get, I used to get weird looks at a preschool Lucy was at when she was about three and a half because I was a male and it was mostly females picking the kids up. And I'm this old guy, I paint as well as write, and so I'd come down there, a little paint spattered. And today I kind of cleaned up pretty good. I shaved and washed my hair and everything. But, <clears throat> you know, if I put on shoes instead of just slippers, these guys would be 
Surprise, so I'd get odd looks. Should we call the cops? There's this guy wandering around a preschool. But as a couple of years went by, we all became very close. And, you know, whether these women were lesbians or married or divorced, rich, you know, driving up in a big old SUV or some beaten up, uh, you know, 20 year old car, it occurred to me that the, the golden moment of each of those days occurred when our kids would come running out of the rooms they were in. And different mothers would fall to their knees as I would because you want to be at eye level with a little kid, as you all know. And uh, hi, mommy, faces would light up. And my granddaughter Lucy was calling me Ba, B-A, which was her mispronunciation like your grandma. Uh, got her own name from you. And I realized that um, at that moment, all the differences between 20-year-old moms and this, you know, 60-year-old grandfather were gone. Because if anything happened to those children, each calling our names, each of our individual worlds would end as we know it. Mm -hmm. And there was no rich or poor, male, female, Greek, Jew, saved or unsaved. There was just a love that is so powerful that when you pick a child up in a preschool and you look at the face of a mother who sees her little daughter or her little son or a grandfather like me, now you are looking at the heart of what makes a human being tick. And everything that we long for comes from that desire to feel safe, not for ourselves, but for that child. For those who we love most, we long for a good God who will protect them. And that, I think, goes to the heart of who we are most profoundly as human beings. And I think that is where everything, all the longing of our mythologies spring from, all the longing of our scripture. And to me, that explains a great deal about beauty, about art, about parenthood, about everything else. But fundamentally, it gives me a great hope uh, that this phenomenal love that we feel is echoed somewhere in the why and the how that we got here. Because two seconds ago, you and I were single-celled creatures swimming around in the slime. Ten seconds ago, we fell out of a tree somewhere and started painting pictures and burying our dead. But all of a sudden, we developed this consciousness, and with that consciousness comes a lot of evil, but also comes an unconditional love where we would trade everything we have to know that those we care for most, most would be safe. And that's the deal we all really want to cut with God. It isn't for our personal salvation. It's that the people we love most are going to be protected. That's where you get to the bottom of where I live, and I'm sure it's true for every single person in this room. And so I think, to me, that is what Advent is about. It's this precious child in the, in the manger representing everything we hope for most and it's this sense of powerlessness of I can't protect Lucy, Jack, Nora, and my two older grandchildren, Amanda and Ben. Will someone else please, 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 please watch over them? And that's where I think we all live. And that's where all the differences between races and gender and everything else we let divide us goes away. It's in that unconditional love we feel for others. And I think that's, that is the bottom line of human existence. And our story is so profound. Yeah. Because in our story, redeemed from all of the drivel and trivial that, we've, uh, that it's accreted through the years, yeah. our story is a God who comes not through a political system but comes in the familial way right. to an unwed mother yeah. and God peers at us through the face of a baby, vulnerable, prone, and the refrain again and again and again, even in the middle of infanticide in our story, yeah. is don't be afraid. Yeah. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And yet we are so afraid, yeah. but the voice of that baby is don't be afraid. Yeah, and I think the, the powerful message of hope that I feel in that, you know, you were talking about the mythologies and how they rose up and uh, rereading Homer's Odyssey recently, a really great translation by Fagels that Penguin publishes, terrific. Um, it's interesting how his whole struggle in that novel is sometimes the gods are on his side, sometimes they're against him. 
And I think one of the mistakes we make as Christians out of the Judeo-Christian tradition to think that our struggles and our story is unique. And mm -hmm. one of the great points of your sermon was just the universality of not only the mythology, but the universality of the desire for these stories to explain something. So old Odysseus is on his raft, and one minute he's thanking Athena for helping him out, and then all of a sudden Poseidon's going to get him again, but maybe Zeus will override all of them. And uh, he would have understood you worrying that your mom had been raptured. I'm not kidding. I mean, the, the you know, Greek mythology, pre-Christian history, it's all there. It always is right back to the beginning. To me, that's very comforting as a human being because I can explain a lot of things in terms of evolutionary psychology in the sense of writing off our personality or any sense of a deity. But one thing you can't write off is these things which actually have nothing to do with our survival, with either sexual reproduction or food or, or any of these other things. And the two big ones are unconditional love, which I guess you could term as uh, co-suffering love where you will really put yourself in another person's place and literally not only suffer with them, but if you could push a button, you would take all their hardship upon yourself, as we do for the people we love most. That's sort of inexplicable from the point of view of personal survival. And I think the other thing that is inexplicable is the idea that we all have this sense, however we articulate it, and that is the kind of non-negotiable intrinsic worth of beauty. And I'm not just talking about art, I mean everything in our lives music, appreciation of nature, appreciation of a sexual relationship that's working, whatever it may be, those two things are hard to write off from a, from a simple point of view of evolutionary psychology. I'm not saying there's not a reason we evolved to do that, but just the reason for any of this to exist in a cold universe that's either too hot or too cold most places to sustain life, that you have this idea of unconditional, non-negotiable love, co-suffering love for another person, combined with this lust, if you want to put it this way, for beauty itself and for experiencing that. And to me, those are the two things the Advent season just focuses on like a laser beam. And by the way, and I'm not saying this, I, I didn't know I'd be saying anything to you guys today. I just thought I was getting on a bus and going to prison, which <laughs> my wife says is long overdue, but um, as she said yesterday. But uh, this is a real privilege. But I got to tell you something, and I mean this in all sincerity. Um, I hope you were recording his sermon. Do I see a nod back there from the control panel? Because I'm going to sit down with my wife and my grandchildren and listen to this. This is the single best preaching of the gospel at Advent that I've ever heard in my life. And I mean that. I'm being serious. That's, in fact, it's the only Protestant sermon that I've wanted to share with anybody in my family for 30 years which is quite something. I go to a Greek Orthodox church precisely because there is no preaching, and people say, well, it's all in Greek, and how do you understand it? And I said, isn't it great? I can't understand a word. <laughs> There's nothing to go home and argue with my wife about, about what I agreed with or didn't agree with. It's just wonderful. It's just straight-up mystery. I'm never learning Greek because uh, for once I don't understand anything so I can enjoy church. But I'm being serious when I say I love this sermon. Thank you. And I just, uh, you know, it's, it's probably the best thing that will happen to me this Christmas. So this has been a real treat. Thank you. Be nice to have Frank Schaefer to come back, won't it?